Hello and welcome to Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Radley. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, one of the greatest challenges we face at the moment is how we deal with uh, the national security threats posed by people who are extremists. By that, people who are, I mean people who are prepared to commit violent acts in the name of some set of beliefs, we might call them ideologies. We've seen a resurgence or rise of extreme right um, activists, terrorists in some cases, uh, over the past decade. And one wanted to take this opportunity to explore it with somebody who understands the area very, very well. Uh, Lydia Khalil is a, uh, a fellow with the Lowy Institute. She's an expert in the area of counterterrorism. And her book, uh, a, a paper, a Lowy Institute paper, if I can uh, describe it that way, was put out by Penguin Specials. It's called The Rise of the Extreme Right, the New Global Extremists and the Threat to Democracy. She joins me now to, to have a little bit of a discussion about where things sit at the moment, what we need to do, and and why it's important that we actually understand uh, what we're dealing with. Lydia, thank you so much for your time. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Now, before we go into matters of substance, um, one of the things that's always fascinating is to hear how people describe themselves uh, to those that have never met them before. What would your career uh, look like if you had to describe it to someone who'd never met you on the back of an envelope? Uh, I'd say I'd have, I had a bit of an unusual career in that my career has really spanned different um, sectors. So it's spanned politics, uh, policy, uh, law enforcement, uh, re academic research, um, and the think tank space. So I've had a wide array of experience moving in different sectors, but working on more broadly similar uh, issues around national security. Um, I first kind of came to issues around uh, political violence and extremism um, really around the 9-11 era, because that's when my career first took off. That's when I was graduating university and about to start my, my work. But I thought I was going to be, my plan was, is that I was um, you know, going to be a diplomat, go work for the U.S. State Department, focusing on Middle East uh, region. Um, but after the 9-11 attacks, so much of the, you know, the foreign policy framework and national security framework was really through that prism of counterterrorism. So many of us who kind of came up during that time inevitably, inevitably um, kind of kind of got su sucked into all of that. And I would say I've been trying to work myself out of a job uh, in around counterterrorism and extremism ever since then. Um, but unfortunately, we've kind of seen this space uh, expand, contract in some ways, but certainly become much more uh, diverse and frankly, more difficult to to understand. And so that's what a lot of my work has been focusing on, focusing on now is trying to you know, conceptualize what it is that we're seeing, uh, try to make a bit of sense out of it, um, and uh, in the process, if it can assist policymaking along the way, uh, that's a bonus. That is a neat segue into an area that we should probably start with, and that is um, there seems to be a tension surrounding what we call 
the phenomenon that we we observe when you when we talk about the extreme right. Um, do you, is there, in your view, an agreement of how the how the continuum actually looks? Well, um, in terms of right wing extremism, I think there's been some kind of lack of clarity and confusion for a number of factors. Uh, one of them is that right wing extremism is a broad spectrum of activities and movements and beliefs. Um, so it's not as clear cut as, say, what we would be talking about with, say, jihadism or uh, violent political Islam, for example, where it was very consistent, it was very clear, it was very coherent, the ideology. Uh, and while there were kind of nuances among the various movements, um, there were not significant differences. But when we talk about right in extremism, what we're really talking about is a spectrum of movements that can run from, you know, neo-Nazism to uh, anti-government activities like sovereign citizens to, um, you know, uh, Trumpian uh, political violence. It, it's quite broad. And I think that that's why sometimes there's been some confusion. But as I outlined in the book, the definition that I like to use, um, and I borrow this from scholar Elizabeth Carter, is any movement that has an anti-democratic opposition to equality. And so if you look at it through that lens, it makes it a bit more clearer when, what we're talking about uh, when we use the term or attempt to use the term right-wing extremism. And that's how I like to define it. Keeping that in mind, it's still quite contested. Uh, and it's contested for a number of reasons. Some of them you know, conceptual and academic, you know, different people view this in some ways, but some of it is also political. So these issues tend to be highly politicized. Uh, and there's an uncomfortableness, I think, um, using that term right wing uh, across society and across government, because, you know, many of us do have traditional right wing political views. And there's an uncomfortableness with associating the two phrases together, right wing and extremism. And that's why in the book, I've tried to be very clear in differentiating between what we mean by, you know, your perfectly legitimate right-wing political viewpoints in mainstream politics and what we consider to be right-wing extremism. Um, and I think the other reason, too, why uh, it's become difficult for us to grapple with this is because this is very much um, a phenomenon that comes from within our own societies. And I'm here talking particularly Western democratic societies. It's something that comes from the majority. And that's a bit more difficult to grapple with than it was, say, from a typically outsider threat, if I can put it that way, say, with Islamist extremism and jihadism. Even though there were homegrown jihadist terrorists within our societies, at the end of the day, it was very, very much a, uh, you know, niche, um, marginal set of people that could never really fundamentally alter our are the nature of our societies based on the ideology. You're not going to get a lot of people who want to have a global caliphate in Australia, for example. But with right-wing extremism, it does tend to intersect with some mainstream views. Um, and, it, it, and it very much can threaten our democratic um, societies and our structures and our liberal democratic ideas. Uh, and that can be quite confronting and quite difficult. One of the areas I've been looking at and reading more in recently is the way in which um, 
historical characters like Ned Kelly in Australia have been regarded as folk heroes when, in fact, an alternative and plausible, in fact, I would suggest more likely characterization is that Kelly himself was a terrorist, uh, if the term were to be applied correctly. But when you read some of the historic takes from historians, they would suggest that you would have to look at um, look at the background and, and where he came from and all the social factors. Um, I'm not sure that um, we would be have the same level of um, uh, understanding if, if uh, Ned Kelly uh, had a very different skin colour, for example. Yeah, well, I think that example brings up, um, you know, some very interesting themes when we're talking about extremism and terrorism, which is that a lot of this is is relative, right? It goes back to that old cliche: one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And while that's yep. a bit of a, a bit of a tired phrase, uh, it does hold some truths to it. Um, also, uh, a historical perspective offers us. Um, you know, various interpretations. So, for example, another similar example is the way that abolitionists were viewed in their time. and their time, they were viewed very much as extremists. Now we look at them as uh, people who were really at the vanguard of human rights and inequality. Uh, similarly, if you look at U.S. examples, when you're talking about a white nationalist movement like the Ku Klux Klan and others, they were always framed as um, not as extremists, not as terrorists, but there's been a movement, a revisionist historical um, movement, and within the counterterrorism research community to actually reframe them as terrorists, given their, the, their violent action, their targeting, their ideological beliefs. You know, now our understanding of them is that you know we can actually consider them very much as terrorists so it just goes to show that um unfortunately this is an area of inquiry that is uh relative based on historical context there's not a lot of agreement uh you don't have um, a universal definition of terrorism and nor do you have a universal definition of extremism no matter how hard both policymakers and academics have tried uh, it's something that's inherently political, contextual, um, and and kind of uh, you know based on on values which differ. And it also a sense of uh, I guess and and a sense of othering as well. When we look at prejudice, if somebody is if somebody sticks out uh, when there's an offender reported on in uh, in the news, for example. Um, there are conclusions made by some people based on the person's ethnicity, skin colour, um, faith, uh, and, and any other distinguishing feature. Yeah, I tend to agree with that as well. I think we've seen evidence of that where it is, uh, you know, we're much more likely to uh, brand someone with the terrorist label if they are other, so to speak. Uh, but I will say that there has been, um, you know, unfortunately because of the rising threat of other forms of extremism that fall within the right-wing extremist spectrum that are usually kind of perpetrated uh, at, by people who of 
are part of the mainstream, you know, white, male, Anglo, what, what have you. Um, and there's a growing acknowledgement of that. Um, there has been more of a movement to acknowledge that, you know, these people can also be ter- terrorists and should be labeled um, as such uh, as well. But, um, but as you say, it is more, um, it is easier to do so when the person is considered other. Which goes back to, to, to some of the other work I've been looking at as well uh, by people like Gordon Orport and his uh, his seminal book, The Nature of Prejudice, where he breaks all this up beautifully. Uh, it, it was written in 1954, or published in 1954 rather, but uh, it's still very much relevant. Now, one of the things we talk you talk about in Chapter 2, which caught my eye when I um, when I read this little, little thing, um, is the issue of how uh, what we call things and sort of the innovation if i can put it that way of a big um, uh, dumpster called other when it comes to defining uh, certain kinds of uh, ideologies that that lead to violent extremism um, ASIO did this back in 2021 uh, with um, what we call ideologically motivated violent extremism. You expressed some concerns. What are they? Yeah, I've been pretty vocal about these changes in terms of uh, terminology that ASIO has adopted. And I should say that um, ASIO and the Australian government have not been the only ones. The Canadian government has also used uh, similar terminology. And the reason why I'm, I voiced uh, my disagreement with them is because while, you know, definitions and terminology can be, you know, make your eyes glaze over sometimes those discussions, nevertheless, I think they're really critical because what we name things and what we call them, um, you know, denotes kind of priorities and importance and values. Uh, and it really helps us to understand and conceptualize things. Uh, and that understanding then has follow-on effects in terms of programs and policy and law enforcement action. Uh, you know, the case in point of all of this is the uh, terrible attacks that happened in Queensland against the the police officers by um, conspiracy-minded um, extremists. And I'll explain a bit how that's all connected. The terminology that ASIO is using is that they are differentiating between what they call ideologically motivated violence and religiously religiously motivated violence. Um, now, I don't think that makes much conceptual sense given the what we know around extremism and terrorism. In that, religion can also be a form of ideology, and also groups that they would put under this ideologically motivated violent category also have religious motivations. So what they're lumping under ideologically motivated violence is often right-wing extremist groups, groups and movements and individuals that we would lump within that spectrum of right-wing extremism. Um, And if you label them as just ideologically motivated, then you discount the role that religion has to play in a lot of those movements. So for example, neo-Nazi movements like the National Socialist Network incorporate aspects of religion in their ideologies and were and other white nationalist movements uh particularly coming out of the united states that have an influence incorporate a lot of religious elements and beliefs 
And so by separating them as such, we're, we're ignoring a whole swath of their motivation and their beliefs, which is detrimental to how we address them. But it's, it's, a, it's also interesting uh, when you consider the fact that some of these movements, particularly National Socialism, uh, have appropriated uh, symbols from religion as a part of their propaganda, as a part of their uh, communication. Yes, that's right. So um, not only do they have, uh, you know, Christian beliefs that can be incorporated in them, but they're also uh, paganistic um, symbols and beliefs as well that get incorporated in a lot of these movements. Um, if we go back to that example of what happened in, in Queensland, um, there was a lack of understanding in terms of how religious belief fed into their conspiratorial beliefs and their motivations uh, as well. And so I think that having these terminologies make it easier for us to do these false dichotomies and thus not completing our understanding of them, which can have some really detrimental effects. The other reason, too, is, is that if you look at the religiously motivated angle uh, t uh, term, excuse me, you know, they're they're using that to refer to jihadist groups. But by focusing on the religious aspect of jihadism rather than the ideological aspect of it, and it is an ideological program that groups like Al-Qaeda and Islamic State have, um, you're putting all of the motivation on religion. And then that that again obscures our full understanding of these movements and their motivations. And it can also unfairly target people with similar uh, religious beliefs. And the last point I'd make about this is that using such vague terms such as ideologically motivated violence to talk about, frankly, what are right-wing extremist movements um, does a disservice to the public because you know, who knows what that even means? Nobody, if you say to someone, oh, someone committed an ideologically motivated attack and, you know, uh, attack to, uh, you know, uh, a police officer, for example, N nobody understands what that means. Whereas if you say someone, a neo-Nazi did X, Y, and Z, uh, or a right-wing extremist did this, people will have a better understanding of what you mean. And it's important in a democracy for the public to have a clear understanding of the, the threat environment, the national security environment, and the challenges that we face. So these terms tend to ob obscure uh, what it is we're talking about and how we're addressing it. Do you, do, I get the sense from the material I've read, both in my studies through Charles Sturt and independently of those, that um, this debate uh, on what we call things and how we call things, uh, might be an indication that the discipline or the area is still yet to mature, because when we talk about ideological uh, sets of beliefs, or whether they be political ideology, let's call it a set of beliefs, set of beliefs. If we define ideologies as a set of beliefs, um, in a, in a framework, and then religion is considered as one of the influential factors, you don't have a problem. Um, is it the, is there the, an absence of a more uh, developed or a more mature analytical framework a problem here, or am I reading it wrong? Well, 
as I say, you know, the nature of the field is that a lot of these things are contested. But I think there, while there is some contestation, particularly if we're talking about right-wing extremism, about, about you know, how to divine, define it on the margins and, and what role uh, more broadly ideology plays in terms of people uh, committing acts of violence versus personal grievances person, versus... Um, other motivating factors, there's certainly quite a bit of debate on that. And I don't think it's a debate that will ever be resolved. I think at least within the research community, there's more or less a broad consensus developing around by what we mean when we talk about right-wing extremism. There is much less of a consensus when we're talking about you know, government definitions and approaches and, and programs. And I think that the um, Frankly, that the the governments, whether they be Australian or other interna international governments, need to be informed by the the research evidence and the evidence base that's there, uh, in order for them to have the most effective means of addressing these challenges. It's a it, it, it is um, a further question that's worthwhile asking here before we move on to. Some of the more, uh, some of the challenges for enforcement and 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 other issues. The is the suggestion that experts, researchers are not being turned to for their assistance by intelligence agencies in order to get this to do in order to get some commonality and understanding. Um, I think they are. Um, I think they are, and certainly in the uh, Australian context. But, you know, as you'd well know, there are other influences besides um, what academics have to say about the matter, for example. So, you know, they have their own operational priorities and considerations, political ones. Um, and sometimes, you know, the evidence base doesn't always win the day. And to be fair to a lot of government agencies and law enforcement agencies who are who are tasked with not only understanding but dealing with these challenges and and trying to solve them um, is that this is a very fast moving uh, environment m more so than I've ever seen um, in terms of the various movements and the threats that are evolving and there certainly are much more amorphous and difficult to understand. And so while they can get the advice of, from academics and researchers around what the research evidence shows, it is it can be quite difficult to then translate that knowledge into programs and policies that will help address it, just because it is so nuanced and so diverse and, um, and changing in a much more um, rapid pace than we saw in previous eras um, dealing with uh, terrorist threats. Now, in previous eras, we didn't have uh, the great wonders of communication technology that we have now. That we both of us would probably agree that technology tends to be agnostic, um, generally speaking. Um, uh, what contribution do you think? Uh, the encrypted apps and other social media applications have had in, in speeding up the the spread of as well as the the 
the change or transformation of to the right wing ideology? Um, well, you you actually bring up something that I've been trying to do a lot of thinking about uh, lately, and I haven't quite resolved it. Um, but I, I'll kind of go back to the what you mentioned around technology being largely agnostic, and you know, I, I think my view on that has actually shifted a bit. I don't want to come out too definitively on it, but you know, a lot of modern right-wing extremism has grown up alongside of modern online internet culture. Yeah. And there is a very deep influence and almost symbiosis between online and, and right-wing um, action because, you know, because of this, there are certain affordances of various technology. And I'm here, I'm talking about communication technology platforms that, allow more for the expression of right-wing ideology and behavior so to speak and Mm -hmm. and that's something that i explore in a bit more depth in one of the chapters in my books uh called extremely online where i kind of lay out some of the evidence and the thinking around how right-wing modern right-wing extremism has grown up alongside of online culture and communication technologies and so i think it's it's uh intuitive to say that of course you know the current communication technology capabilities that we have has allowed for the broader spread uh, of of online extremist content but i think the more interesting question um and one that's not fully resolved but there's my thinking has moved more and more just to saying that not only has it allowed for greater creation and spread of content it's actually um affected behaviors um and um and and actions around expressing right-wing um extremism through the affordances of these technological platforms isn't it simply a reflection of what happens in what used to happen in the mainstream, uh, in in let's call it the the physical world for the moment, for want of a better description, where a lot of the extreme views were sort of underground views, and <laughs> the technological um, yeah, technological world or the digital world gives us. Yeah, the mainstream platforms like Twitter and Facebook, and then you look to you look to other social platforms, which, in a sense, um, are kind of like the subterranean space. Um, particularly those that are not moderated as well as others. Yeah, well, you know, content moderation is a whole whole can of worms that we can probably don't have time to get into, but. You know, (laughs) things like, um, you know, anonymity is an affordance that allows for the greater spread of these things, because before that, you know, people would be reluctant in some way to attach their names to some of the and and faces to some of these views. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. The the use of. You know, um, online humor and online Internet culture which invokes kind of a lot of dark dark humor, insulting humor, 
um, is another vehicle for the spread of these extremist beliefs. So people can kind of couch it and it's just as, oh, I'm just joking type of thing. That's more difficult to do when, when you're face to face. All of these things have, have allowed for the spread of, of you know, extremist views. Um, you know, the growth of disinformation um, that's proliferated online is another thing because a lot of extremism is connected to disinformation and, and conspiratorial thinking. Um, so these are just a couple of examples. And, and again, I get into them into it a bit more detail um, and hopefully a bit more coherently than I am now in, in the book, um, because it is a kind of a complex idea to try to reduce in a, in a couple of sentences. Yes. But certainly all of these things um, have factored in. One of the challenges in all of this, regardless of which actors and which ideologies uh, people like yourself look at, um, and others, whether it be law enforcement or in the academic sector or in intelligence, one of the challenges is um, trying to stay sane when you're looking at all of the all of these competing, well, all of these things that are particularly, um, let's call them ugly. Um, you can use many other words, but all the, the ugly things that you look at as a part of work. Um, I know what happened when I first confronted my uh, a piece of primary source propaganda when I studied propaganda, uh, a propaganda unit, and my response was visceral. I was physically um, put off by it. Um, how does somebody that uh, works in this, such as yourself, deal with you know self care when when these you know, when, when there's a there's simply a lot of focus on nasty things people do to others? Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and then and honestly, one that the field as a whole has been grappling with more recently. Um, so around the well-being of people who, you know, deal with this, whether they're working in government or researching it, because you do come across a lot of nasty things. Um, you know, I can say for myself, and I don't know if this is a good thing, it probably isn't, but you have to uh, have a certain level of detachment. Um, otherwise, um, it's very difficult to be analytical about these things, but you have to cultivate a detachment that's not removed from your humanity because um, I I actually find it valuable when I do become impacted by by these things because it really goes to show you the importance about this work and and the harm it can do and the urgent need to kind of, to to address it. I think it's also helpful for me to uh, have a historical perspective um, because it's so easy for everything to be so immediate and deal with the crisis of the day um, and to look at this as the next worst thing. When you look at things through a broader historical timeline, you realize that, you know, things have always been bad uh, in a way and every society and every time has its challenges. Um, and so I find that helpful. Um, and also there, there are things that I avoid um, engaging with and, and looking at full stop. So for example, I would never watch beheading videos or certain images um, 
that I know um, are incredibly dehumanizing and, and violent, there's no need for me to see them just to say that I have seen them. They offer me no analytical benefit. Um, and so yeah. trying as much as I can um, not to encounter those things when it's not necessary for my work, um, I, I certainly do that. Are there other things you do to switch off from, from all of that? Um... Yeah, certainly. You, you have to have a separation from, you know, your work and, and your other life. So, um, you know, it's uh, and it can be difficult because a, a lot of this stuff is um, can be quite consuming and, and, and urgent. But, you know, you have to make time for family, friends, be around people who don't um, don't work on this issue. For example, I mean, I have a lot of great colleagues that I engage with regularly who I count as friends and we work in similar areas. But similarly, it's very valuable um, for me to have friends and colleagues and acquaintances that have absolutely nothing to do with this stuff um, and and engage with them on other things besides uh, besides these difficult topics. Now, uh, I've been talking to Lydia Khalil, who's the author of Rise of the uh, Extreme Right, the New Global Extremism and the Threat to Democracy. It came out last year by uh, Penguin and the Lowy Institute. Now, uh, Lydia, um, a book like this takes time to write in the midst of all the other work that's done by somebody that's responsible for analysis. Uh, what is there another is there another book in you in the next little while? Uh, I'd like to think so. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, hopefully this isn't the the only book that that I um, that I write. But as you say, it is a it's a it, it's quite um, time intensive and an in, intense process um, to do it. And so, I think perhaps um, you know give some space for this publication uh before we <laughs> before we think for, about the next one <laughs> okay um lydia thank you so much for your time thank you for joining me with the uh, with this particular discussion and i look forward to hopefully catching up with you again at a later stage oh you're welcome this is was a really engaging discussion thanks again for having me absolute pleasure